step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height Put it all in the height Hi, welcome back to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig. And I am delighted to be here, and I'm delighted to speak to all of you. I must tell you that so far, Hat Radio is going quite well. We have about 1,200 listens as opposed to listeners. I'm not quite sure how that works, but call me if you do. And uh, very, very excited about it. I, I, I think that we have great potential here. I met with a social media company. We may be going that route if we can bring that price down from $50,000 a month. <laughs> So you hear a laugh in the back, and um, I'm sure you're not surprised that we have an interviewee here with us today, and her name is Joan Ruja. Thank you so much. Welcome, Joan. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, I, I, I'm delighted to have you here as a guest because I told you a long time ago, we met about 10 years ago, that uh, you were the first person that I had ever met whom I felt that I would want to write a script about. I feel like you're overhyping me here. So far, <laughs> what happens is it all decreases during the show. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> yeah, so hold Make on tight. Make things more realistic as we go along. Exactly, hold on tight. Um, and the reason I said that is because your life is fascinating. I mean, what you've done, and of course we'll get into this th through the course of the next 30 hours. <laughs> Some it's okay, I quit my job. Oh, good. Some people say, Avram, these interviews are an hour and a half. I'm not going to give you an hour and a half. I say, okay, don't then. Who are you? You're not even my friend anymore. So, so uh, but, but the thing about you is you have done stuff in your life which is so highly unique, which is so different than anyone I know we're going to call you a prisoner's rights advocate. Would that be accurate? That would be accurate. Prisoner's right, rights advocate. Yes. So what I encourage the listener to do is stay with the show. Like, don't hang up yet. <laughs> See how good I am at technology. <laughs> because Joan is going to tell you about conversations that she's had on the phone with people who are in jail. She won't tell you their names. Right. You, you probably won't say what they've done because some of it's very graphic. But True. for all intents and purposes, you have been their counselors for a decade. Longer. Yes. L longer. Right. Which is phenomenal. Thank you. You're welcome. OK. But before we get into the interview. I like to uh, do a short monologue, which, by the way, really is a dialogue. So it means you need to speak. <laughs> OK. <laughs> OK. So the first thing I want to ask you is, is it, is it true that a good meatball is hard to find? Wow, you start with a deep question. I go right very away, deeply eh? right from the start. Yeah. I guess it depends on what you're looking for in a meat. I mean, it's all subjective, right? What is a good meatball, Avram? Can we answer these questions? I don't think Listen, so. Listen, a good meatball to me is what my mother used to make. And I'm asking this question because I was out at Subway with my son a few weeks ago, and I noticed that someone was getting a meatball sub, and I thought, that, that couldn't be a good meatball. And what would make you think that? It's just a good meatball is hard to find. That's really the theme of this part of this dialogue here. And I ask you, although you're vegan, 
True. Right? right? How long I'm not you, really looking for good meatballs. How, how long have you been vegan? Uh, it's been a while now. I can't remember exactly how long. Like but five, it's six been a years while. or something. Not quite that long. Uh, are you Are you happy being vegan? I am. The first time I tried to go vegan, it didn't work out because I am addicted to cheese and I wasn't able to give it up. But yes. then the second time I tried, it was just a lot easier. I think I was just in a better headspace for it. So I, I'm really happy I did it and I enjoy it and I don't feel deprived of anything. And Is cheese a hard addiction to give up? <sighs> Is it? Almost harder than quitting smoking. Or heroin. Yeah, that too. They've done studies. I don't really like to talk about that. I thought we said we weren't going to discuss that. <laughs> we won't go into that whole heroin thing. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, so so you are vegan. So the only meatballs that you would have really are, are vegan meatballs. Like there's no ground meat in them, right? I would hope there wouldn't be any ground meat in my vegan meatballs. Yes. Right. Or your mom's fooling you at <laughs> dinner time. Um, transformative justice. Again, an area that we're going to get into. Quite a segue. <laughs> Thank you so much for meatballs to, to mm -hmm. justice. Um, transformative justice. What, how would you define that? What is transformative justice? Okay. Well, I guess first I would want to say what we call through my work at Rittenhouse, transformative justice is a form of justice that's based on um, indigenous justice practices and traditions. Yes. So the idea is that what we currently do, let's call our current system a retributive system, so when social harm happens, we call it crime, and um, it's considered a crime against the state, which is why prosecutors represent the government rather than victims. And we reduce a person to a single act. So someone's a thief, someone's a robber, someone's a rapist. Um, we don't look at all, at all at the context of what happened to bring them to that place where they might have committed that act. Yes. And then we just punish people, put them in jail, exclude them from society, treat them like pariahs. Whereas transformative justice, the idea is that, you know, social harm is like ruptures between people and relationships. And even though we need to hold people accountable for their behavior, we also want to keep them in the community. Yes. So the idea is that the people who are most affected come together and in a often in a circle process. So people sit in a circle. There's the use of a talking piece. Only the person who holds the talking piece can speak. Right. Everyone has the opportunity to sort of tell their story. But the key piece, other than being heard, is that then all of the people in that circle work collaboratively to come up with a solution that's going to benefit everyone. And then the community supports them in doing that. And you facilitate those circles. I do. Right. What's the guarantee at the end of it? There's no guarantee. So what happens if there's a rapist with, with their victim and they go through this process of talking it out and there's an ostensive apology, uh, which seems very sincere, and then afterwards the person goes and recommits? I mean, if he's in jail or if she's in jail, at least we know they're behind bars. Right. Well, I think, first of all, no one can enter this process unless they have said that they're responsible. So yes. you have to sort of say that you're accountable, admit to what you've done to even enter in the process. I also think it requires a lot more accountability to sit face to face with someone you've harmed, hear them talk about how mm -hmm. what you've done has affected them, but also to have the opportunity to tell your story. And you know, my experience has been that that is more likely to create real change, to build empathy and understanding, to recognize the gravity of your own behavior, um, and to want to come up with a solution that you're invested in. Now, the example that you're giving, I've never actually done a circle for something sort of of that gravity, but I do ilk. know people that have participated in circles where sexual assault has occurred. And because the person has taken responsibility to begin with, 
they have really wanted to, they have been very committed wow. to making amends for that. Okay. We're, we're going to get into that a little bit later. I just wanted to touch on it at the top because you're right. It was an important segue for meatballs. <laughs> 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 and it was also my ball there. It was also my note here, so I had to, you know, how radio is. But um, the whole thing's fascinating. And again, you, the listener, stay stay with us because we're going to uh, uh, discuss that in more length. Because there's something definitely wrong with our justice system. I mean, I think in the United States of America, there's more prisoners per capita than any other country in the world. Yes, right. Ostensibly, with this country, has enormous amounts of freedoms and so on. And Canada's building more prisons. Prisons, aren't we? Yep, we're building more prisons. Prisons are currently overcrowded. Yeah, People crazy. are double, triple bunked. And I think another thing that's really important to know is that provincially, um, more than 50% of people in jail are there on remand, which means they've been charged but not convicted of a crime. So we live in a country that talks about having a presumption of innocence. So it's completely outrageous to crazy. think that people are sitting in jail for months, sometimes years, who have not been convicted of a crime, crazy. often because they don't have the money for bail to be out in the community. Do you have any nightmares about going to jail? I, I do. I have nightmares about people I love going to jail. Oh, really? Like whom? Like my father, for example. Just anyone I love because I know what the conditions are like. And so I feel physically sick at the idea yes. that anyone I care about should have to be in that situation. And, you know, particularly for elderly people, um, there's a really big aging population in prison. Prisons are not at all equipped to deal with that, yes. not equipped to deal with people's physical health issues. And so the idea of anyone struggling with health issues, right. well, anyone at all, but particularly older people struggling with health issues being in that situation is like unbearable to even think about. I think what Bill Cosby did was horrendous, was terrible, was so painful to hear about, let alone, God forbid, for someone to go through that. But he's 80 years old and he's blind, right? I'm not suggesting what should have happened to him, where he should have gone. He seems to be a minimum. Is he not a minimum? I'm not actually I, sure I think he where is. he is. I think okay. he is. And, but still, I mean, he's an old man. Yes. And I think, you know, I have some complicated feelings about that as well. I mean, it's absolutely true. What he did was horrific. He yes. abused his power. He did it over decades. He traumatized so many women. He absolutely should be held accountable for that. And I think for those women, um, it's what they needed to feel safe. And I understand that. And I think we have to center victims in these situations and give victims what they need. But But on another level, on a human level, I have that same feeling of just this elderly blind man being in prison Honestly, and yeah, yeah so I, I completely understand what you're saying you are such a compassionate person i try Ugh. I, I, do you try yes. like do you have to force yourself to be compassionate i don't have to force myself i think you know you know this as well there are some people that maybe we find it more challenging to be compassionate to than others but yeah, yeah i really want to try to approach everyone from a place of compassion but do you think do you think being born in Beamsville, <laughs> do you think that compassion is part of your DNA? Do you think you were born an empathetic or compassionate person? Because there is a there is a debate here. Yeah, I have no idea if I was born that way, but I was certainly raised to be compassionate um, from as early as I can remember. Yeah, and I think that whole nature versus nurture conversation. I'm not sure, but definitely, like my parents raised me to be compassionate. Do you remember being a little girl and taking care of other little kids, putting their arms around and making sure they were okay? I was an extremely shy child yes. and I uh, was an only child. So I actually didn't hang out with a lot of children. I mean, yeah, I don't have a lot of recollection of hanging out with other kids. And I was so shy that I don't know if I would have done that. But my first memory of 
I guess what might be called empathy was my dad taking me to this parade. I think maybe it was like the equivalent of a Santa Claus parade, but in the town I grew up in. And they were throwing out freezies into the crowd. I was sitting on my dad's shoulders. And uh, my dad, you know, reached down to get me one and couldn't get me one. Like they were all gone. And so I felt terrible, not because I didn't get one, but but because I felt like my dad felt like he'd let me down. And I remember that very clearly i will always remember that experience of being like oh he wanted to do that for me and couldn't do that for me and feeling terrible about it is that feeling still inside of you like when you think of this memory does it hurt you well i still have that same feeling of discomfort of like yeah when someone else experiences discomfort i think i feel that as well yeah, I find it very interesting. First, I find our narrative very interesting. Why do we choose certain pieces that become chapters in our narrative? And the second thing is, I also have memories of my father when he didn't protect me mm. at a rally uh, when Kosygin was here in town, Soviet premier, and these RCMP horses were coming down on us, and I was terrified. You know, I was knee-high to a grasshopper. I was a little fellow, and I remember him not protecting me. And when I go into that memory... Um, I'm there. I'm there. Are, are you there with that memory of your father not getting you the freezy? It, it is a very clear memory. Yes, Like it I is. have a visceral reaction to it still. So right. I guess in that way, yes. Right, right. And so many things spin off of that in the rest of your life, right? Mm-hmm. I know. It's incredible. Is it possible to work that stuff through? To go uh, back there and... Absolutely. It is. Sure. Right. Now you've become a therapist. I have, yes. Yeah. How I, is that being a therapist? I love it. What, what do you love about it? Well, I think I've just always been very interested in people and their stories and I've always really liked listening to people. And so I think it's just a natural progression for me to become a therapist where I just have an opportunity to listen to people and hold space for them. Um, So, yeah, I love it. Do you help people, actually? That's such an interesting question. Because there are those who say that therapists have failed terribly over the years. Well, this is what I would say. I would say, like, I... You know, just graduated from school, but I was seeing clients as a student for two years before that. And certainly when I started for a number of reasons, because of nervousness, because of lack of experience, I think there were times when I was not helpful. And I think, you know, like in any job, you have good days or bad days. But I think I'm sort of developing more skills and feel, I guess, in terms of helping people. What I feel like is valuable as a therapist is, first of all, to create what's called a therapeutic alliance. So you need to show that person that they can trust you and that Mm. you can hold their feelings and that you're going to be solid. So if they feel like they're disintegrating or falling apart, you can sort of tether them to the ground. And the other part of being a therapist is just, as I said, like holding space for people to talk because my what I really believe is that people know what they need. They know the solutions to their own problems. They they are aware of what has brought them to the place they are, even if sometimes those things are unconscious, mm-hmm. but helping to bring those things to the forefront and yeah, just allowing people to talk, I think is the most helpful thing you can yeah, do. Yeah, I love that you're a therapist. Thank you. I do. I mean, you and I, we've known each other again about a decade. Would that be correct? Yes. And I've seen uh, uh, your growth, you know, and I've seen you evolve, you know, from some pack-a-day smoking server, <laughs> you know, like to drink, the whole thing, to being quite a sophisticated <laughs> woman. <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever called me that I know, I you. know. And I'll come up with another description <laughs> later on in the show. No, but you've grown so enormously in this past decade, and it's really quite something to watch because how often are we privy to someone's growth, especially at that level, you know? 
You've done really well. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Do you feel that? Yeah, I feel like um, for a long time I didn't know myself. And in that sort of not having a strong sense of who I was, sometimes it was hard for me to make decisions. I couldn't really think about the future. I couldn't really imagine myself having a future. So I think now that I have a stronger sense of self and more confidence, I guess, in a way, which might be a product of age, that I just am much more open to experience and feel, have more faith in my abilities to do new things and to commit to things. So yeah, I do feel like there have been significant changes in me in the time that you've known me. So name one thing that you know for sure about yourself that you hadn't known two, three, four, five years ago. Hmm. Well, I think one of the things for me that I was thinking about the other day is that I used to think I couldn't do anything physical. Yes. Like I used to feel like I wasn't strong. I could never be athletic because I was one of those kids. I was super awkward and gawky and uncoordinated. And I was that kid that was always picked last for teams. And Just I like felt, a shitty athlete. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. A shitty athlete. And I had that sort of confirmed yes. and reinforced in yes. a lot of different ways. Um, so I had a lot of anxiety about doing anything physical and... I went to Costa Rica with my mom in 2007 and there was an activity, this zip lining activity. Right. So I signed up to do it and I got there and I felt sick to my stomach and I was like, why did I, there's no way I can do this because it actually required like climbing up a rock wall and doing these things that were quite, yeah, that required a lot of energy and I did it and yes. it was this kind of transformative experience for me where after that I was like, oh, I can be that person who can do those things. Oh, so it all started there. Yeah. So now, as you know, like I rock climb and yes. I've gone caving and I've gone zip lining again. You skate. I've just, re yeah, started, I just skating. started skating again because of your son. Yep. And that is also like, it's not just about doing physical things. I think it's just made me feel generally more confident about who I am. So, so let's put this in context, you know, 15 minutes into the interview. <laughs> okay. Who are you exactly? <laughs> and why are you here? So <laughs> again, you and I have known each other for at least a decade, if not longer. We dated. We can say that, we right? Did. Yes, we did. Um, and I, I, I really have looked at your life and thought this is a person I'd love to have on the show because firstly, you articulate your story very well. You really are a storyteller, I think. Thank you. Yes, and you have the story to tell. Now, Hat Radio really is a show about anybody and everybody, but they have to be able to tell their story, right? And your story is a fascinating one, chapter to chapter to chapter, and there's so much to say. Now, it all starts off in uh, Beamsville, Ontario, right? <laughs> yes, it does. You were born in 1973. Yes, I was. Correct? Mm -hmm. And your dad, I, is it safe to say your dad is more of, a, a, let's say, a native activist than he is a real estate guy? Well, what I would say is that um, my dad made a decision early on in his career that he was not going to develop or sell any properties that were on contested land. Mm -hmm. So anywhere where there were um, indigenous land claims, he just wouldn't work on those properties. He's worked really, he's worked with Six Nations for most of his career, um, mm -hmm. trying to work in collaboration and support what Six Nations is doing and just to make sure that he wasn't stepping on any toes or, or working in areas that were not appropriate for him to be in. So that's always been very important to him. My dad has always been very political, very has very strong opinions about right and wrong. Um, yeah, and that was just a thing that's always been very important to him, more important than making money, certainly. So who did he hang out with? How did he come to this sort of philosophy or ideology not to sell land? that is on indigenous land? 
I think it's something that he came to on his own. Yeah. Do you yeah. know do you know how? Um it's a good question. I think that he just did a lot of research about indigenous issues and I think just as a part like a part of being in real estate is to understand and know a lot about properties, do research about properties and I think just within that um he just started to realize the injustice of like why are people even working in these areas that are unceded indigenous lands yes. um and just pretending that that's not true. That's that's absolutely phenomenal cuz I don't know anybody else who does that. I don't either. No. I mean, there must be, but I don't know anyone Th- then else. Then there must be. That. Now, your, your father's Hungarian. Yes. Right? He was in the war in Britain, right? He was an interpreter during the Hungarian Revolution the, I'm sorry. In London. That's correct. Hungarian Revolution. Yes. yes. And uh, and then he came to Canada. How did they end up in Beamsville? Um, well, they were living in Hamilton, and I think they just wanted to raise their child in a small town. And Beamsville is a very small town. There were 6,000 people living there when I grew up there. And I think they just decided that that's where they wanted to be in a quiet, more rural environment. Was that a wise decision? How do you mean? In other words, raising a child in a small town? Well, I mean, I think there's pros and cons. Like, I think it is good to grow up in a small town. I always felt very safe walking around. But I think as a teenager, when you get to that point where you want to be with your peers and be out and sort of individuate and do things on your own, there was nothing to do there. So what did you do? Drugs. A lot of drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Drugs and alcohol, yes. And you also climbed the escarpment, right? I did, in fact, climb the escarpment one night. And of course, oh, it was late at night. Yes. What time was it? Who can recall? I think it was probably around 11. <laughs> and how was it? Did you get to the top? Yes. Did you? I mean, I didn't climb the whole escarpment. It was just the the part that we climbed up was pretty straight up. So your rock climbing experiences actually happened earlier. <laughs> I guess that's than true. you previously stated. I guess that's true. I hadn't made that connection before. <laughs> and your friends. You, you have dear, dear, dear friends from that era growing yes. up in Beansville. Like, there's a whole litany of them that you're still in touch with, right? Yes. And I think one of the good things about Facebook, for all of the bad things about Facebook, one of the good things about social media is I was able to reconnect with people that I hadn't seen in years uh, when I got on Facebook and sort of reestablished some of those relationships. How are they doing? The people you went to school with, how are they? For the most part, they're doing very well. Are they? Have they grown? Have they done things with their lives? Yes. Can absolutely. you give an example? You don't have to give a name, but someone you went to school with, what has he or she done? Oh, well, I have people, different people doing so many things. People who are teachers, people who work in libraries, people who are musicians and actors and playwrights and all kinds of things. And these people actually make livings? Yes. Do they? Mm-hmm. So that's exciting. There's nothing as exciting, I find, as having a friend from, in my case, because I'm 58 years old, John Strauss is my buddy. I've known him since I'm five. So for 53 years, I've known this person. Right. You, you almost have an archivist in some ways. Like people will come up to you, no doubt, someone whom you've known since your childhood, and say, hey, Joan, remember we did this? Or remember you did that, right? And essentially what they're doing is they're helping you remember your experiences and your narrative. Yeah, they're filling things in. And I think the other great thing about long-term friends is there's this shorthand, like you don't have to explain everything. Right. They know you, they know your history, and that, yeah, it just makes relationships very easy in a lot of it ways. It does, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Now, your mother, here's an interesting uh, thing. Your mother was a librarian, but not only she was a librarian, she was a librarian in the school that you went to. Yes. My mother was an English teacher for years, and then she moved to Grimsby High School, which is where I went to high school. Which is near Beamsville. The librarian. Yeah, it's sort of the neighboring town. Yeah. 
So how was it having your mom as the librarian in your school? Well, you know, I, I was a teenager and my mom and I didn't get along particularly well when I was a teenager. My mom was like a total hard ass. Like my mom takes no shit. So when she was in the library, if there was a student in there behaving in a way she didn't like, she <laughs> was known to throw her shoes yes yeah, she threw her shoe yes on occasion she would throw her shoes at people or she would just be like you're a jackass get out of the library <laughs> was it embarrassing to you oh yeah at the time like there were times when people would say things to me about her or when my class would have to go into the library like I was a teenager I was 14 15 years old I didn't want to be around my mother so I didn't yeah. yes I did not appreciate her but there's one story that I just remembered that I love about my mom which is that this guy was in the library and he was causing trouble and she told him he had to get out and like underneath his breath breath he called her a bitch and she said I may be a bitch but I'm the bitch in charge <laughs> those are good days aren't <laughs> I know they? I love that story yeah about your my mom, mom your mom stood up for herself I, I had my mother as a teacher and I had my father as my principal that that did not go very well wow yeah it did not go very well that sounds stressful my mom was a hard ass too and, yes. and I think my father wanted to make a point that he was the principal of me and it, and it really was not so symbiotic but one gets through it at seven or eight. <laughs> you were seven when your father was your it, principal? It was Talmud Torah. It was like Jewish school after school. Oh, right. Like we would go to, I would go to Shepherd Public School and then I'd go over to the synagogue, Beth Jacob Synagogue, and we'd go through another two hours of Hebrew school, right? You not being Jewish wouldn't know that. I would not. No, you're not Jewish, are you? I like to consider myself an honorary Jew. I think you are too. I don't know if the Moses. Jewish people would agree with me. I do. Oh, thank you. I, you only need one. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell everybody you, you are. For me. Yeah, you're an honorary Jew. Thank you. Ah, I don't know if you know this about Beamsville, but I came across this fascinating piece of information. Firstly, there's a ton of wineries there. There are so many wineries. Have you there. visited them? I'm not a wine drinker. I drive past them a lot. Tell me if you've ever heard of Angel's Gate Winery. I've heard of it. Have you ever heard of Atlantic Niagara Wines? <laughs> I don't think so, no. Cornerstone Estate Winery. Well, you really did a lot of research. You're <laughs> Didn't like I? Brian Linehan Yeah, over I know. Here. It's like Wikipedia <laughs> at its best. So <laughs> no, listen there's to so this. many. <laughs> Brian Linehan. He should rest in peace. <laughs> um, yeah, so I want you to know that the goal for hockey was basically invented in Beamsville. Did you know that? The goal? The goal, like the net. I did not know that. Isn't that something? That's a fascinating fact. Yes, thank you. William Fairbrother, the inventor of the hockey net, lived in Beamsville. No way. Yeah. Bill Berg, formerly a hockey player for the Toronto Maple Leafs and now an NHL broadcaster, was born and continues to make his home in Beamsville. Do you know that name? How did I not know this? Paul yes, Lowes. I know that name. Do you know Paul Laus? I do not. Ryan Christie? You don't. Another Beamsville native of note, Tanya Verbeek, earned an Olympic silver medal in women's wrestling at the 2004 Summer Olympics in Athens, Greek. Very you, impressive. You know what I love about you? What I love about you is that you don't know any of these people. And even if you do, it would not be a big deal to you. Like for years, I've been coming to you and I'm saying, you will not believe who I just spoke to. You have no idea how this speech went in front of uh, Bob Geldof and this night. You go, oh, that's nice. Well, I think that's true, but I think the t only two times I've met people where I felt kind of starstruck were Mia Farrow and Bob Geldof. At one of my events. At, at Starry Nights, yeah, yes. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> that's why I'm doing this interview. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think normally I'm overly You're not struck at all. by famous people, but those were two that were You're not at all. Why aren't, why aren't you? I have no idea. Like, don't you feel as though you're in the midst of someone who has either huge amounts of accomplishments or huge amounts of responsibility? Well, I think with Bob Geldof and Mia Farrow, the reason that I was so 
like that I admired them so much was not just because of what they'd done as sort of actors or musicians with but all of the humanitarian work that they did and yes. hearing them talk about it and Bob Geldof in particular was just so articulate and it done I mean obviously I knew about Live Aid because everyone knows about Live Aid but it was hearing about all of the work that he did it was just so impressive and I remember something actually this really stayed with me that you were telling me afterwards yeah. that someone one of the other people that had attended that Starry Nights had said that they like they kind of wished that you hadn't had Bob Geldof there oh. because it made them feel badly about their own lives. Yes, I which I that. found so interesting because I just was so inspired by it. Yeah, it's fascinating. Madonna, I saw her in an interview once. She said, "Why are people so critical of me? Why don't they try to emulate me?" So <laughs> that's my response to that person's statement. Don't feel so badly about your life, or do better not to, but <laughs> emulate him or her and do something great in life. Right. It's funny that people don't make that sort of uh, connection. I don't know why. Yeah, I remember finding that so strange when you told me that. I know. I also find it inordinately strange. Like the, the thing about you is over time you'll meet somebody or you'll come into contact with someone who's doing something very prolific, very interesting, very worthwhile knowing about. As an example, your boss before you took over Rittenhouse. Mm -hmm. And you're, you set about trying to emulate this woman. She was a phenomenal woman who guys would get out of jail People had murdered someone and they would go straight from jail to her house and live there, right? Yes, yes. She used to have people live with her when they got out. What she was, really what was her walked name? the walk. Ruth Morris. Because I think there are a lot of people that I don't think I could do that. Yeah. You know, like I think she was a really rare individual in terms of not just her commitment, but what personally she was willing to do. Um, yeah, I think that's very rare. I, I think it's rare too. Um, but I do know people who have done such things and they're very courageous. And I think the truth is that they're in sync with reality because generally people are appreciative of what you do for them, no matter what their background is, and they're not going to hurt you. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, when you say that, one of the things that people used to say to me, especially when I started my job um, and when I started going into prisons, because I worked primarily with men in the federal system, um, there was always this people were worried that I was going to get hurt. Yes. Or that someone was going to take advantage of me. Or when parole officers would call me when I started working with people, they'd be like, do you know what this person did? And he's going to try to manipulate you and, you know, don't trust anything he says. And that was not my experience. Like, that has not been my experience. My experience has been that people have been very respectful, that they recognize that I want to help them, that they have, yeah, been kind and respectful. The only times I ever felt unsafe in prison was because of guards. Never because of prisoners. Well, why did guards make you feel because unsafe? Because I think there's something about, I, I don't want to make a generalization. I think there are people that go into doing that profession wanting to do something good. But I think there is something you have to wonder why a person would take that job. And there's a lot of abuse of power. And there's a lot of very oppressive behavior and, yeah, just arbitrary uses of power just because people can. And the level of contempt um, that those guards often show prisoners and the way that they speak to them and the way that they on a constant basis want to let them know that they're pieces of shit is is very upsetting and and i find too that a lot of guards don't understand why anyone in the community would want to support prisoners yeah. and think that we're idiots and so treat us as such and it's very apparent that they feel that way well to be very crass and simple about the whole thing it pays well and you don't need much of an education to be a guard yeah, unless that's changed recently. My understanding is it's like a two-month training and right. most people start at around $50,000 a year right. with benefits. So right. I can see why it's attractive in that way. I should be a guard, you know. 
I'm not making any money here. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> was it inevitable that you would lo- leave Beamsville and go to Toronto? Was that just a given? Um, Whether it was inevitable that I would go to Toronto, I mean, I did that because my friends and my boyfriend at the time were going to school in Toronto, and so I went with them. And yeah. a friend of ours had a house there that I moved into that house. But it was certainly inevitable that I was going to leave Beamsville as quickly as I could. How were you when you became independent of your parents? How did you do? Well, I mean, I think it was a struggle for me at first. I was fortunate that I was with people that I loved and sharing a house with those people. But it I had no idea what I wanted to do at that point. And everyone I knew was going to university and I just had no interest at that time and initially couldn't find a job and then found jobs that were very low paying. And it was, yeah, I think I struggled. It took me a while to know who I was and what I wanted to do. Did you keep your room clean? Did you do your laundry? (laughs) Did you cook? No, I would say no to most of those things. Did you eventually start to do that stuff? Did you become domestic? I think I'm only recently becoming domestic. Yes, you brought me a donut that you made. <laughs> I made donuts. I know, and it was very, very tasty, <laughs> well, I must tell good. you. Yeah, I'm, I'm amazed at the things you've been cooking. Do you clean your house? I do more now. Like how, I just, how often do you clean it? Once a week, probably. Okay. I think I okay. just be doing self-care things or keeping my environment not chaotic. I just wasn't good at it. Yeah, I wasn't either. And essentially, it's because we weren't taught to do it. Well, in my case, my mom was extremely organized and clean. Our house was always clean. Yeah, but she didn't teach you how to do it. Uh, I don't, uh, I don't known. know if that would be true. I just didn't have any interest. It wasn't or didn't feel up to it or I don't know what it was, but I just. Do you use not. any any stuff with lemon? Do you like the lemon smell? <laughs> I love lemon. You know when you walk in the house and it smells like lemon? Yes. Oh, I absolutely love that. Me too. Lysol. Do they test on animals, Lysol? Yes. So I've stopped using products that test on animals, but I found this brand called Attitude, and they make very lovely, lemony-smelling things. Oh, okay. So I'm going to have to buy mm-hmm. that. So so you move to Toronto. You become a server. It used to be called a waitress, right? And uh, at places like Sneaky D's, down on College and Bathurst. Oh, I never worked at Sneaky oh, you didn't D's. Work? It's just my favorite, favorite place. place in the world to go as a bar or restaurant. Yeah, you just took Noah and I. Were, were you a good server? Yeah, I think for the most part I was good. I didn't start out serving. My first job actually was working at Greenpeace doing phone canvassing. And I did a few of those jobs. Well, you know, people hang up on you. They tell you to go fuck yourself. It's not not the most fun job. And, And the other thing was, you know, Obviously, they're trying to do whatever they can to make money. But at the time, um, the ozone layer, like the depletion of the ozone layer was a huge issue. So they would want you to call people and then ask them if they had children and then say things about how, you know, their children were going to get cancer because of the depleted ozone layer. And I felt quite uncomfortable about that. I would understand why. Yeah. But I had a few of those jobs before I got into serving. Yeah, uh, you you can get impatient. Uh, um, so I, I I often have this image of you serving, and comes the end of the night, and you would sort of look at somebody with disgust because they were taking a long time to order. Is that a reality, or am I making that up? I think towards the end, when I knew that I had to get out, is that I couldn't be nice to people. Who it was much harder for me to be nice to people because yeah. really, if you're going to be a server. You have to swallow a lot of shit, (laughs) especially with drunk people. Um, And I used to be able to do it. I could just put it somewhere and not take it personally. And but after a while, I started talking back to people. And I'll, you you know, to be honest with you, I it's I don't think it's ever okay for someone to treat you 
like you're less than human because you're in the service industry, and which I think happens all the time and it's unacceptable. Correct. But you know, you kind of have to find a way to deal with it. And I just couldn't do it anymore. And I did get very, like if, you know, if it was last call and people wouldn't give me their like beer, I would just be mad. <laughs> I was so tired of it. <laughs> so how, do, is there a particular instance that you remember where you got upset with somebody? Oh, there are many instances. Can you give I us one where, that's graphic well, and dramatic? Sometimes people with will blood, like, preferably. The way people <laughs> will call you over to the table will be like snapping their fingers. Hey, you. And I just it used to make me feel mentally deranged. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there were a lot of things. People said a lot of very inappropriate things to me and were just very rude to me and treated me like I was their indentured servant and um, all of that was bad. But just there was a, a level of sort of contempt and dismissiveness with yes. which people will treat you that is very hard to take. I think it's changed a little bit in the restaurant service and industry. I, I think hope so. I think it has. I don't see it as being quite as bad as it used to be. But when I, Marty and I were doing the, the radio show, Marty and I from the Food Guys, yes, I remember going to restaurants um, and hearing how people would speak to service people and thinking, my God, who gives you that right to talk that way to anybody? Right. It's like people think they've Ugh. had a bad day and they oh. can just go in and take it out on you. And it's not just with servers. I think it's with anybody in the service industry. So it doesn't just have to be bars or restaurants. I've seen people, yeah, treat the people serving them like garbage so many times. Why would anybody aspire to work in the prison system with prisoners Um in a very, very, very difficult, difficult environment. What? Why did you do that? How did you come up with that after you know not doing the service stuff anymore? I was actually still serving when I first started, but there were a couple of things that happened. One was that I had seen the film Dead Man Walking. Have you ever seen that movie? Many, many years ago. So it's Susan Sarandon, and she's playing yes. a real person, Sister Helen Prejean, who was a nun who worked with people in prison. And this particular story is she's working with this guy, Matthew Ponsolet, who had committed quite horrific murders. And she knew that he'd done it. There wasn't a part of her that was like, maybe he didn't do it, but he didn't have anyone. Um, and he was on death row. And she went in to sort of counsel him and to sit with him. Um, and there was something about that that I found very moving, that she's like, I'm not excusing the behavior. I'm not doing any of that. But everyone deserves someone and who's going to listen to them and support them. And at the same time, she really wanted to support the victim's families. But the victim's families, understandably, were like, how can you sit with that man? He's a monster. He killed our daughter. But it just made me realize like it doesn't have to be those things don't have to be contradictory. Like you can support both sides. So she's right. But I'm going to challenge you anyways. Is she right? Would, would you embrace? Would you have embraced Charles Manson because he's a human, because he deserved the right to be heard and to be coddled, embraced? Well, I don't know if it embraced, but you know that I've worked with people who have committed very serious violent crimes. And I guess the thing is like. When you look at someone from the outside, and obviously what Charles Manson did was horrific. There's no question. Um, but in working with people closely over years, what you discover is people are very complicated. So it's like I was saying earlier, we reduce people to one act and then they become one dimensional and they become monsters. And it's really easy to look at them that way. Yes. But people aren't monsters, they're people. And understanding how people got somewhere um, is not the same as excusing their behavior or wanting to support people. Like if there are people who are going to get out of prison, then we need to support them because 
don't we want them to successfully reintegrate into the community instead of just reoffending and going back in because they have no one? And I think people can't change on their own, or maybe a very rare person can change on their own, but people need community to make meaningful changes in their life. They need to be loved and supported. No, I, I totally agree, but I'm also thinking here, man, you must have taken a lot of shots. Yes, certainly people don't understand why I did it. Even people, even members of my family, even people I was friends with were like, why would you want to work with prisoners? But the thing that was most painful and difficult for me is that sometimes, and this was mostly when I did presentations in the community, <laughs> people would say to me, you don't care about victims. They would say that. Yes. And that was the thing that was most difficult for me because, of course, I care about victims. How could I not? I mean, of course, I care about people who have experienced trauma and harm and violence at the hands of other people. I would have to be a pretty terrible person not to care. Um, but that was definitely the thing that I took the most shots about is like, how can you possibly support and advocate for people in prison and also care about what happens to victims? Do you think that you empathize to a very, very high level because you yourself have been victimized? Oh, I'm sure, yes. I'm sure that's a part of it. Would you say that's the core of it? Well, I think it's just, I don't like to see people suffer, like most people. Right. It's hard to be, see people suffering and you want to help them. Some people don't see people suffering because what they do is they stay home. Right. Like me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see people suffering. I can't take it, so I stay home. Well... Except I'm, you, I'm being very serious. But except you started an organization and ran an organization for 20 years that existed to support people yeah, who were uh, struggling. Right. And then I got out. <laughs> it was too painful. And it's understandable. Like it's <laughs> it's hard to, you know, and another thing I found is that sometimes I try to be cautious about who I talk to about details about my work because what I would find it's sort of normalized to me and you know, I work with other people who do the same thing, so we have these conversations where talking about awful things is feels kind of normal but then i would go out into the world and be around other friends and at realize a party. by the expression <laughs> at brunch at a party and recognize by the expression on someone's face yeah. oh this isn't yeah. i shouldn't be talking about this and right. and it can be sort of isolating in some ways because i feel like there's a part of my life that i try to protect people from but i mean it's just the reality like it's difficult depressing painful at times kind of horrifying things that people perpetrate against others and have had happen to them and not everybody wants to hear about it and I totally get it. So I've had to be cautious and more thoughtful around what am I about to say and why am I saying it? Right. And it's another way of allowing yourself to finish your vegan omelet and to enjoy it. Yes. <laughs> right? It's true. Right. Yes. I've, I've had that too in my own environments. Uh, I'm a bit left of center. My family's very, very right of center. Mm. So I learned early on, you know what? I'm going to finish my lunch. You know, this is not going to solve a thing. I'm going to let it go. They have their thoughts. I have mine. And we'll leave it at that. And I got, you know, full. My tummy was full. Yes. I mean, absolutely. I minimize it. I'm, obviously, I'm, I'm, you know, it's it's much more complex than that. But I understand clearly what you're saying. You get to an age in life where you say, okay, I'm putting the hammer away. Right. Right. I'm putting the hammer away. I'm not going to smash people over the head with the idea that they need to be more compassionate. You know they do. You know you do not want them to judge guys coming out of jail or women coming out of jails in that one-dimensional way, which you spoke of a few minutes ago. But the hammer just doesn't work anymore, right? Well, I think the, the way the hammer worked for me is that when I started, I was 25 when I started. Yeah. I was very, I would say, almost aggressive with my views. And I felt very strongly that, I was right. 
And so sometimes I would get into conversations with people who were sort of pro-prison or would say things that I felt were based in ignorance and people who didn't necessarily want to educate themselves and I would be very hostile and very arrogant. And, you know, strangely enough, that didn't work and people didn't respond well to me and I would just end up having where maybe I got to feel right at the end, but nothing constructive had come out of it. So I've tried over the course of many years to change that and be try to be open to dialogue and pr try to find ways like areas of commonality where maybe I can start a conversation with someone about prison that they can be open to receiving it and and in ways that maybe they can relate to, but not in a way where I'm pushing and poking people and like, yeah, being like, you, you need to think this because the way you think is wrong. Even though sometimes I still have that feeling, people sometimes still say things where I want to respond in a particular way, but I just know it won't be constructive. Yeah. And, and and I have never responded well to people speaking to me that way. Right, Who exactly. responds well to it? No, nobody does. But the, the really the interesting thing about you is that you're a warrior, and I've always said you're a warrior. You're like the person who would take a stance on the street. You did, in fact, when someone was beating up on their girlfriend. You got it. I'm not laughing at that, God forbid. But you got in between them. Right? Yes. And you looked in the guy's eyes and you said, you will not hit her, right? I can't, I don't know if I, I said Whatever exactly those words that, were, but right? I, yeah, those times for me, it's almost like reflexive. I know. Like, they I don't are. think I think about it. I just, there have been times when I've seen something happen and been like, nope. Right. That's and that's what not going to happen. That's what I'm saying. You have that combative nature. And I think what you've done is you've directed it in a most positive way. Much of it now coming on social media. Like, I've seen you take on three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people at a time um, having to do with an issue that you completely disagree with them on. And you would juggle all these people coming at you, sometimes being very, very disgusting towards you. Yes. But you, st you stand your ground. Yeah, I think sometimes, okay, yes, I have very strong opinions about things. And you're tough. <laughs> and sometimes, I mean, I have to say, though, social media is such a cesspool for that. And certainly there have been times where I have not been proud of the way I have handled myself and times when I have responded in ways where I just wanted to, like I was just mad at the person and wanted to make them feel shitty. But what I really try to do, and I, I know I told you about this time where I got into a debate with so many people on Twitter about prison stuff where people just attacked me like it was where I would look at my notifications and it would be like hundreds of notifications yeah. because people were just like you're a terrible person and yes. it was incredibly stressful but throughout that because it was like three or four days and I couldn't like it I felt like I needed to respond but I tried so hard just to stick to facts and like hold my ground without getting personal and it was very challenging and incredibly stressful but it's a bit of a buzz isn't it Sometimes it's a buzz that just felt like that pile on feeling, which I've heard other people talk about, but had never experienced. It's a pretty terrible feeling. I see. Like even if it's strangers, a bunch of people telling you you're a bad person who has no morals yeah. is difficult. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's a lot of that going around today, isn't there? Well, yeah, I think a lot of times people aren't looking for middle ground. They just want to be right. And if that if everything's being approached as a debate as opposed to a conversation, which I think everything now, the way people talk about things is like, debate me. It's like, well, shouldn't we try to get to a place where we understand each other? And I think that's often not what's happening. I, I, I like to think that the pendulum is going to swing back to the center and eventually we're going to get to a place where a diversity of ideas and thoughts and opinions um, will be something that we do indeed embrace. Because right now it's swung so far the other way where you're right wing and I'm left wing right. and, and never never shall we meet under yes. any circumstances. And I hate you and I might even attack you. 
yes, it's things are so divisive right now. So Joan, so you become the director of Rittenhouse. The, it's a small NGO, a non-governmental organization based in Toronto. And essentially the goal or the mission statement of Rittenhouse is really is to help guys on the inside, right? Um, I would say also it's to advocate for community alternatives to prison. So yes, there is that component of support and advocacy for people inside, but there's also just this, I do a lot of public education about alternatives to prison and try to advocate and promote the use of circles and try to advocate for community organizations um, who work with marginalized populations to find ways not to bar those people or have service restrictions so they can access services. So I'd say there's a number of components to it. And you've gone inside to Kingston penitentiaries, right? Yes, I used to go in uh, at least once a year to go to things called pre-release fairs. So in the minimum and medium security prisons, they would have these uh, day-long events where community organizations would go in, set up in the gym. They'd let guys come down to the gym and sort of see what services are going to be available to them when they get released or even services they can utilize while they're still inside. So you're inside Kingston Penn. You're locked in there. Uh, never in Kingston Penn, but all of the medium. So Joyceville, Bath Penitentiary, Collins Bay, all of those. And you're locked in there. Well, yeah. Yes, absolutely. You can't get out until the guards. What was the first time you heard the bars clang like? To be honest with you, I don't think I ever heard bars clang because of the, oh, no, that's not true. Because the, the way it works when you go in is like there's a series of doors. And as soon as you go in one door, the door behind you shuts. And that, so yes, actually, I have heard that happen a number of times. But the first time I ever went in, I went into a lifers group at Bath. And even though like I'd been working at Rittenhouse for a while at that point, and sort of a lot of the myths that I'd had about prison and prisoners, I'd you know, worked through those and recognized that those things weren't true, I still had a lot of anxiety. Because when you think about lifers, people who are serving life sentences, I had, I guess, this particular idea in my mind of who those people were going to be, yes. knowing that they had all committed violent offenses, potentially murder, sexual assaults. Um, and also my parents and other people were like, don't do it. They did not want me to go in. Your mom and dad knew you were going. Yes, but my dad in particular was extremely worried and I think that's because we get fed so much false information about who's in prison. So it was completely understandable. But I remember going in and then people being completely respectful and funny and kind and, you know, wanting to have great conversations. And there was a guy in there. So I would have been 26. There was a guy in there who was younger than me. And he was in there because he'd killed his father. And stuffed him into a closet but the reason he'd done that is because his father had been abusive to his mother and himself for years and years and years and he just reached a breaking point yes. and again i'm not excusing murder but it just really shifted something for me where i was like and he was younger than me and just looking at him he was like he looked like a kid and just to recognize that instead of this idea that people are just kind of wantonly committing violent acts and don't have any remorse and don't care that this guy had just been in a terrible, terrible situation, didn't know how to protect his mother or himself, and just was sort of provoked to that point. And it did, yeah, it was just another one of those experiences I had in life where I was like, okay, I have a better understanding of it now. Things are more complicated than we think they are. Where, where would you have gone with this person over the years? Had you Did you stay in touch with him? Uh, not him in particular. No. Oh, okay, let's say somebody, let's, let's, uh, create another scenario that I'm sure existed someone who killed more than one person you you told me once about someone who 
um, kidnap someone who hurt this person's girlfriend and he tortured him. Yes. And ultimately he killed him. Um, he actually killed a different person. Okay, so he killed somebody. Yes, there were two separate things. So you've had a lot of exposure to murderers. Yes. My son and I have always said, you can't be Joan's friend unless you kill someone. <laughs> yes, you have always said that. And then we laugh, and then I think, oh, God, we're all bad people. We are bad. <laughs> so, so okay, so there comes a point with all of them or most of them where you realize I'm speaking to a human being. I'm talking to somebody who once was a child. Is that where you go? Yes, I mean, you develop relationships with people. So once you develop a relationship with someone, they're not one-dimensional. And the thing about Rittenhouse is, one of the one of the pieces of the Rittenhouse philosophy is serving the hardest to serve. Yes. And that's partially what that means, is to work with people that maybe other people wouldn't work with. And so, yes, I've had a lot of experience working with people who have done legitimately really terrible things, which I've heard about in detail and read in their paperwork. I've had people, I remember starting to work with this guy and he was like, before we move forward and before you decide if you want to work with me, I'm going to send you all of my paperwork. And I think in a way it was a test. He wanted to see if I would stick around once I knew what he had done. What did he have done? He what had did he do? killed his wife. Okay. But for me, it's like, this is what I signed on to do. This is my job. I work with people and support people. It doesn't mean that I like what they do. It doesn't mean I don't have feelings about what they do. But it means my job is to advocate for, provide support for, and try to help people when they get out to be able to live successful lives. Uh, have you ever said, no, I'm not going to deal with you? I had one experience um, with a person who showed no remorse, who had committed a terrible, terrible crime. Um but just showed no remorse and in fact saw himself as a victim. And there was something about his behavior and the way he, and, and I also felt like he would tell me details about what he'd done, but I felt like he was getting off on it. Like people tell me details and that's fine. They need to get it out. They need to talk about it. But in this case, it just felt like, um, and I realized I couldn't work with him therapeutically. Like I wasn't able to be, I wasn't able to put my feelings aside. I wasn't able to be compassionate and I, just remember hearing myself speaking to him one day and having to say to him, I can't, I can't do this. And this was, this was on the phone. Yes. So they would call you. Collect, yes, people collect. call me collect. Yeah. Or Co also now people can get phone cards. They can put money onto phone cards so they don't have to call collect. But yes, often they do call collect. And some of these guys you've been speaking to well over a decade. Oh, saying. yeah. Right. And, 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 and th this must mean so much to them to call you and you're there. Yes, I think there are some people who they maintain support like their families support them throughout or their spouses or loved ones or children but for people serving really long sentences sometimes it's just so hard um, to maintain relationships and sometimes people can't stick around it's too painful for them to think of you know i'm not going to see this person for 20 years they can't wait that long and so for people who are really isolated and don't have other people then any lifeline is so important do you ever call call guys on their shit Yes. You do like what? Give me an example. Um, I remember talking to a guy who was telling me that he was considering joining the Aryan Brotherhood in the prison and considering getting a swastika tattoo. And I yeah. was just, and I had to call him on well, that. What did you say to him? Well, I was like, you're going to regret it. First of all, it's incredibly racist. And, and the thing is, sometimes people join things like the Aryan Brotherhood because they want protection for themselves. So they're like, I'm going to go right, in. Right. I need to be part of a group that's going to protect me. But you also need to think about 
what does that mean? Right. Are, are those actually your beliefs or are you just going to pretend those are your beliefs to try to get by? Like, and if those are your beliefs, like where do they come from? And let's talk about that because that's terrible. I think I would probably join the Aryan Brotherhood for protection. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't take you. I'd turn them all into Jews. They would not take so, you. So Sorry. you tell this guy that. Would you remember his response? I think he just thought about it. And I've had other experiences like that. I had an experience where a guy t- talking about a Jewish lawyer and making a very typical, stereotypical comment about a Jewish lawyer and mm-hmm. me just being like, no. Oh, you like, see, so he would call him out on his racism. Yes, but the thing is, I had relationships with those people. Would I have done that it was, if it was my very right. first phone call right. with someone? Probably not. But when I have relationships with the people and it's a real relationship, we can talk about it. So what things. would they say? When, when you they would think, them? I mean, people get defensive. I get defensive when people call me out on things, but they would think about it. So, so these are really important phone calls. Not to sound trite, like these are really important. You're not only doing something for them in terms of having a lifeline, of which I'm sure you are to a large extent, but you're actually helping them work stuff through in life, right? Which they don't get a lot of exposure, obviously, to the outside, if none at all, really. So, so much of what helps us change our views, they don't get. They don't have internet, right? No, they don't have access to the internet. No. Right. So they're way behind these guys. <sighs> So, yes, so behind. And and that's a, another huge thing, too, is people who serve long sentences and then get out. Think of how much the world has changed in 20 years. So people who have never used a computer, people who've never seen a bank card or a cell phone and just coming out and being completely overwhelmed and then being used to being in a situation where there really aren't that many people around yeah. and then being out in the world, which is teeming with humanity, people telling me about having panic attacks, getting on the bus, not knowing how to pay a fare having to be in a crowd of people like when people are institutionalized it's such a profound i remember there's this guy rosie robotham i don't know if you know him but he worked for the cbc for a long time i don't know and he served the longest sentence in canadian history for drug trafficking he was trafficking hash and they gave him like a 17 year sentence it was completely insane but anyway he got out he got this job working for the cbc and he talks about how being in the office one day and then he hears this sound like a bell. And in prison, you have to do count twice a day. They literally, you have to go to your cell and they count you to make sure everybody's there. And that sound was like count. And without even realizing it, he got up and started walking as though he was walking back to a cell because he, he was that institutionalized. It's absolutely phenomenal. I, I, I wonder, and I told you, I have these nightmares about going to prison. I wonder how somebody is contained uh, within four walls and uh, survives. I, I, I don't understand how somebody can get through the day and then get through the next day. Uh, I'm assuming you have to do something to develop your mind so you can get outside of those four walls cerebrally. Uh, I don't know how to do it otherwise. How would you do it? Well, I think many people talk about having to shut themselves down emotionally because you don't want to show any vulnerability or even how could you feel all of your feelings? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like if you think about it, there are people who have committed sort of violent acts. They may have ended someone's life and then they get put into prison, but they have also experienced a trauma as much as people might find. Yeah. Not like that idea or not agree with that idea. It's also traumatic to cause harm to another person, unless you're a sociopath, which is incredibly rare. So they go in, they've done this thing, they've harmed or killed another person. They're now in prison for an incredibly long period of time and nobody's helping them. Yes. 
They're not getting therapy. They're not getting support. They don't get to work through it. And they have to shut themselves down to survive being in prison. Because if you want to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist in prison, it's different from in the community where confidentiality is ensured. So nothing you say in that room is going to get out. If you go to see a psychiatrist in prison, everything is being written down in your file. Right. And then when you go to a parole hearing, for example, and if you've talked about struggling with anything, that's going to be used against you. So really, why, how could anyone be honest talking to a therapist if it's going to be used against them later? So people just carry all of those feelings inside. And when I used to go in for pre-release fairs, you know, people would come over, there'd be all of these people standing in front of your table, and they just want to tell you their story because they don't have any sympathetic ear. You know, like, again, some people do have their families and other loved ones, but some people don't. And they're not getting any positive reinforcement, any compassion, any love, certainly from anyone who works there. Yes. So they just it's like a torrent of things that people are telling you. And a lot of it's about depression and anxiety and all of these other sort of mental health issues that they're having that they are not getting any help for. What's it like when you get a call from a mom? Her kid murdered somebody. He's been in there for eight years. He's going to be in there for another 10 years. Well, what's that like for you? Well, can you imagine, I mean, the heartbreak for families? Yeah, I know. I can. And, and not just the heartbreak, not just losing that person, not just trying to come to terms with them having potentially done something really terrible and trying to reconcile that with the view you have of your child, your spouse. Your boy. Um, but there's also the guilt by association is that family members of people in prison are often treated as though they have also done something wrong. So they're also carrying that stigma. Suddenly, I remember a woman, her son had committed a murder and she's like, I will come outside to my front yard and my neighbor will walk back into her house. Like all like my friends have stopped calling me. And wow. so the isolation, like, it's, and, you know, maybe if it's your spouse, your spouse was the primary breadwinner in your home and suddenly you don't have any money. And because prisons tend to be out of the way, you have to spend a lot of money to travel there, stay in a hotel. You have to accept, collect phone calls. It's this huge financial burden. And sometimes it means that people aren't able to connect because they literally don't have the money to have a conversation. So the ripple effects of people going into prison. There's what the victims go through, and then there's what that person who's perpetrated that act goes through, and then there's the families of both sides. It's just this ripple effect of it's pain a mess. and suffering. What about kids? Well, that's another thing. Can you imagine suddenly one day your mom's not around or your dad's not around? Honestly. And you have to go visit someone. The first time I ever went into prison to that lifers group, I will never forget this either. You have to go through a metal detector and an ion scanner. So you have to take all of your stuff, put it in a box, and it goes on this, just like at the airport. And it goes through a metal detector. And this mom had come in with her toddler and she had brought toys like stuffed animals. And watching those toys go through the metal detector, there was just something about that for me where I was like, this is what families have to go through? Yes. This is what they have to endure. And how you even explain to a child what has happened or what it means that they see their dad in a room where they might be limiting the amount of physical contact you can have. And it's for this limited period of time. And there might be guards there watching you. Can you can they touch their kids? Yes, I think in most cases. I mean, if someone's in a provincial jail and you go in to visit, you're doing it through glass. And Or another terrible thing that's happening now is they're doing video visits. So in the new detention centers, they've put in these video screens so you go in to visit your loved one and you're on one floor essentially skyping uh -huh. they're on another floor looking at a computer monitor you only have 20 minutes and you can't have any real meaningful 
or physical contact with your family, even though you're in the same building. Uh, you know, the phenomenal thing about all this is that the word penitentiary comes from the word penitence. Mm -hmm. And the initial idea was, okay, you're going to sit in these four walls. It's almost like a timeout for adults. And you're going to think <laughs> yes. about what you've done and you're going to work it through and you're going to rehabilitate. Right. But penitentiaries have not evolved that way at all, have they? Right. And to your point, like it was Quakers who um, were really advocates for the penitentiary system because prior to that, it had been sort of corporal punishment and execution. Yes. So they felt that it would be more humane, that, yeah, people would be penitent. They would sit and reflect on what they'd done. But years later, it was also Quakers who came up with what's called an abolition minute, which is they called for the abolition of the prison system because they recognized that it was just a different form of torture. I mean, sometimes it's still physical torture, but it's certainly mental torture. And they realized that it had been a mistake. And in that minute, they, they were, I think, the first religious group in Canada to advocate for abolition. Um, they said it's as oppressive to the cagers as to the caged. So it's just this recognition that anyone who is within the walls of the prison is going to have this terrible impact on you. You know, what's striking me right now is how right you are and how pissed off people are going to be to hear this. Both of those at the same time. Well, I but guess, I applaud you. Thank I applaud you. you. And I would just like to add something to this because, again, we're supposed to have a system that um, centers victims yeah. and how that is not the case at all. So victims often can't have any meaningful participation beyond a victim impact statement. Even if a victim wants to have a face-to-face -face sit down with a person who's considered the offender, it's not allowed because our system keeps people apart. Um, and victims who have to be witnesses, let's look at cases of sexual assaults, and who have to go on the stand, are ripped apart because we have an adversarial system where lawyers are fighting each other to be right. And so people are re-victimized. A courtroom is a place where people are re-victimized all the time. So, you know, I would never tell a victim how they should respond. I would never say you should forgive, you should do this, you should want to engage in a transformative justice process because people should do what they need to do to heal. But what I see is that people don't aren't made aware that there's an option. What they're told is you as a victim, the only way you're going to feel safe, the only way you're going to get closure is to put people in prison. Whereas when victims have been spoken to after engaging in a face-to-face restorative or transformative justice process, they talk about healing. They talk about building empathy and understanding. They talk about, because victims need answers. Why did you pick me? Yes. But sometimes you never get those answers because of the court system. Whereas you can ask those questions to a person and have those questions answered. And people with post-traumatic stress disorder from having been victimized identify and report that their PTSD symptoms are reduced or sometimes actually disappear after going through one of these processes. So the process is called transformative justice. We touched on it at the top of this interview. In its simplest form, you have people sitting around a circle, mm -hmm. right? And there are people who have been affected or in fact were responsible for a particular crime. And again, simplest terms, they talk to one another. Yes. I think there's three fundamental questions you ask the group, right? That's right. So there's a couple of things. Is Like you said, it's in a circle. Um, where, use, where would it be? I mean, you could have it anywhere. You want it to be a private space, obviously, where people feel comfortable. Um, it could be just the two people, the person who's seen as the victim, the person who's seen as the perpetrator, and a facilitator or circle keeper. 
those people might want to bring support people or there might have been other people who were indirectly affected by what happened you could bring those people you could invite other members of the community to come it just has to be agreed on everyone has to feel comfortable um you sort of explain the process and then um you try to start by talking about values because sometimes people can come into that space and be uncomfortable and nervous and angry and all of those feelings people might be bringing in and feel like they have no common ground. So what you do is you ask everyone to state a value that's important to them. And then you say, so honesty, integrity, open-mindedness, compassion. And once everyone has said what their value is, you then say, can we agree that this is, these are going to be the values by which we treat each other over the course of this session. Have you ever been surprised by someone's value? People... I find that for the most part, they're quite similar. Although a guy with I work with, Michael, he I work with as a facilitator. His is always um, about being allowed to make mistakes, which is something that I love. So it's a really good one where he's like, I want to be in this space free to make mistakes and not be judged. So you go through those values and then you ask the three main questions. The questions are what happened? How were you affected by what happened? And what would you like to see happen moving forward? So you do that with the talking piece so there's no interruption. Because maybe someone's going to tell their story and the other person is going to be like, that's not what happened. And they're going to want to respond in the moment. But the point is that each person gets to tell their story uninterrupted. Each person as in the victim and the victimizer. And potentially other people who've also been affected who are participating in the circle. Uh, who, who goes first or doesn't it matter? Um Yes, I think sometimes that's prearranged and sometimes it just happens in the moment. But you want to make sure that people know this is not about prioritizing. You're both going to get a chance to speak. You're both going to get to tell your story. And by and large, do they listen to one another? Yes. They do. Have you ever seen a situation where someone says, screw this, and they walk out? I've never had someone walk out. I have been in situations where initially there was a high level of hostility and where people felt like they were just going to be punished. I think a lot of people are accustomed to punishment and they are accustomed to having consequences imposed on them. And that can particularly be true with marginalized people who get kicked out of spaces, who are targeted by the police, who have all of those experiences where they're very apprehensive walking into it because there's a way that they're used to things going and that's their expectation. So I have had people walk in being like, I'm just going to, you know, you just want me to apologize. It's like, I don't want you to do anything. I want you and this other person or who else is involved in the circle to come up with a solution together. You, not me. I'm not here to tell you what to do or to impose a consequence or a punishment, but that can be hard for people to accept. So I've seen people come in very hostile, not wanting to look at each other, aggressive tones. But if they trust the process, it's an incredibly powerful process. It's hard to describe unless you've experienced it, but it really is transformative. And I have watched people completely change their demeanor, wow. completely change the way they speak, going from hostility to gentleness and softness and forgiveness in ways that are, it's like a privilege to be part of. How do people say they want to fix the problem? What are some examples? Where do they like to go with the transformative justice? Well, sometimes it's about making, it kind of depends on the circumstance. So I I often uh, participate in circles where people have been kicked out of community organizations. So these circles are, how can you come back in the space, um, but ensure that the space is safe for everyone? So at that point, say it's a staff person and a client or community member, they're going to come up with solutions of how they can share that space together. So something might be, 
if I come in and you see that I'm agitated, can you take me aside and have a conversation with oh, me? Okay. Good. Things like that. Good. Or if it's like a, you know, a healing circle or trying to resolve a conflict between two people, because that, that conflict can be about any number of things. Again, it's like they go around, they can take as many circles as they need to, to come up with a solution that works for them. So what does it mean to make amends? Right. You know, what are you going to do to make the other person feel better and so that you feel better so that you can, yeah, so that you can share space together. So, so, so what are some examples of, of uh, groups of people who have come in? What, what have, there been, what have their, their challenges been? Is it marital stuff? Is it you stole from me? Um, I have not experienced, like, people coming in with relationship difficulties are something that I'm going to obviously experience more as a therapist dealing with people individually. These are more, like, issues that happen in housing. Um, issues that are going on in a broader community that people are struggling with maybe grief and loss in a broader community. I did have someone approach me asking, they were estranged from their father. She and her sister were estranged from their father, but they were considering trying to see if they could reestablish some kind of relationship with him. And so they were looking to do a circle. That hasn't happened yet, but certainly that is, it could be literally for anything. As long as all parties are willing to participate, there's no limit to what you can do a circle for. What was the example of the community you just mentioned? They felt unsafe in the community? So recently we were asked to do a circle um, in a community um, in Toronto that was having a lot of issues around violence um, and they were connected to this particular um, housing project. And so really they just wanted to be able to process some of that grief and loss and look at how they could make their building and their community safer, to look at how changes, things like gentrification were affecting them, feeling like they were being sort of pushed out of their own neighborhood. Um, the dealing with the grief and trauma of, of people dying in your building and people overdosing from drugs and yeah. just like creating space for people to work through those things in a supportive environment. And then more often than not, does it end positively? Yes. So, so it's a really, really good structure to implement. And it's so simple. So when I started doing it, I would feel very nervous because I felt this sense of responsibility. I still feel a sense of responsibility, but my mistake was I was accustomed to for example, running a board meeting. Well, that looks a really particular way. You have an agenda. You have to stick to the time. You want to make sure you're being task focused, mm -hmm. whereas this is all process. And so once I realized that and I could let go and I could be like, all I need to do is ask these three questions, make sure people are using the talking piece and help them come back to the values if they've forgotten the values. That's it. That's what I'm there for. And they are doing the work. Are you, are you good at it? I think I'm much better at it than I used to be. You, you and agree? that's because I feel more comfortable in it. Yeah. What would be the greatest challenge for you in that circle? Well, those, those were the greatest challenges for me. The feeling like I should be doing more. The feeling like maybe I should be intervening. Um, just it's letting go. It's hard to let go. Right, right, right. It's hard yeah, to we've relinquish had this control. We've actually had this talk over time. I remember when you started doing these. Right. You said that was a really big challenge. And I understand that myself as someone who talks quite a bit. <laughs> Right. You're saying the structure that we normally exist within is, well, I'm going to give you a solution. Now, yes. Right. Yes. We want to give advice. We, we want to give, give solutions advice. and people, people know what they need. They just often aren't given space to figure it out. So you went to school for about five years to study therapy. <laughs> Seven years. Yeah. I it want, should I have want been to say about, I want to say about five. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. And, and, and now you're a therapist, right? Mm -hmm. So you're the person on the other side of the couch. Yes. I'm the guy on the couch, right? 
Well, we don't use couches, but yes. Well, that's the best imagery I can <laughs> right. come up with. Okay. Because I actually went to a therapist for five years who was Freudian. Right. And I literally lay on the couch and he was behind me. I would hate that I so much. I hated it. It sounds so I terrible I didn't say a to word me. for five years. <laughs> and you said you're all better. Okay. I know people benefit from <laughs> psychoanalysis, but that's not a thing that I would either want to do as a patient or as a therapist. So you, the person walks through the front door. They're a stranger. Mm -hmm. They have stuff on their mind, some of it very serious. They sit down. You have that chat with them. You slowly but surely start to understand why they're there, who they are, what they're all about. And hopefully their narrative starts to spill out. That's a big responsibility. Yes. I, what I feel like is people are entrusting me with their mental health. Very much. And yes, they are trusting me to help them. And that does feel like a huge responsibility. And so days, you know, it's why you have to be so mindful of how you're walking into the room. Like if I'm having a bad day, I have to make sure that I sit and meditate or do grounding exercises or breathing because I have a responsibility to be present for that person. Yes. I can't be sitting in a room while someone's sharing their trauma with me and I'm thinking about the thing I didn't do for my other job. Do you ever get weepy at people's stories? I try really hard not to do that. And for me, that's because I don't want to make it about me. And I think other therapists are different. And I'm not saying I'm right. But how I feel about it is I don't want someone to feel like they have to take care of me. Because therapy should be the space where you just get to think about yourself. Right. Um, and it shouldn't have to be a reciprocal relationship in the same way other relationships are. So someone shouldn't have to ask me how I'm doing. You actually left the therapist once because she started to cry. Well, it was because she started to cry and she touched me without asking if she could touch me. And again, I've talked to other people that would see that as being empathy and love and would be fine with it. Just it, that does not work for me. Um, yeah, that does not work for me. So uh, does a therapist get into a Zen place? Do you get into a place where you go, yeah, the approach that I'm taking, the direction that we're both on is working and you just kind of go with that? Is it like a long distance run? Well, it's interesting because, as you know, I'm a person who experiences a lot of anxiety. And what I've noticed is that the one time, no matter what else is going on in my life, the one time that I feel very grounded and very solid is when I'm sitting with someone in that room. Right. And it's partially because I want to be that for them. But also, you know, you can I'll still be nervous doing an initial assessment sometimes because I don't know a person. What if we don't click? Like, what if it doesn't work? Um, but as I develop relationships, you develop a relationship and a rapport, the rapport that comes with a relationship and you start to understand the person and you can make, and after you know them for a while, you can help them make connections. So they can say, I did this thing today. I don't know why I did it. And I can say, that reminds me of this thing that you told me three weeks ago, because sometimes when people are stuck in something, feel like they can't move, they just need that help to make a connection. So what's kind of cool is as I'm growing in that space, so are you. Yes. You're getting stronger. You're getting to know yourself more. You have to know yourself. Like if you don't know yourself, I don't think you can be a good therapist. I know. I've been at those people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know very quickly that they have absolutely no idea how to connect with someone emotionally because they're not doing it with themselves. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So what should be the expectation then when one goes to a therapist? Well, I think the expectation is, should, I mean, I don't know if there's any one expectation, but that you're going to be in a space with someone who is going to care about you, is going to be empathetic and attuned. So, you know, so I've also had experiences of going to see therapists that I felt were misattuned to me, which means I would be talking about something and their response would be so off base that I'd be like, 
are you even listening to me? Like what's yeah. happening? Yeah. And sometimes misattunements don't have to be bad. Sometimes you can make a mistake. The person can correct you and it can actually build and you own it. You own that you made a mistake. It can make things stronger. But really you need to be attuned. The person needs to feel like you get them. And so that's, yeah, the expectation is you're going to try to build a strong relationship with them and you're going to be empathetic and attuned. You're going to listen to what they say and you're going to try to help them with whatever you know, sometimes it might be a here and now issue. Sometimes it might be I'm having trouble because I'm experiencing anxiety. And maybe I'm going to take an approach which is more like what strategies can we implement to help you reduce your anxiety in the here and now? Sometimes someone might come in because there is a behavior or a pattern that they don't understand. And what may need to happen is that they may need to connect to things that happened in their past right, right. that have created those patterns. So everybody's different, but just a person needs to believe that you're trying to help them. So, 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 so you come from Beamsville, you eventually end up in Toronto, you become a server, <laughs> you eventually you work for Rittenhouse, then you study psychotherapy, and there you are sitting, sitting in the room, the office of which you rent, and you have a, a client there. Um, and things are going swimmingly and you're doing what you've tra been trained to do um, and it's moving forward the way it's supposed to, I guess. I guess there's many different directions that could probably go in therapy, right? Or is there one direction? Nope, there's many directions. Okay. With all of that life experience, don't you want to do more than just say how do you feel about that? Don't you want to give advice? Well, I don't just say how do you feel about that. I think I did that at the beginning. Um, or sort of part of my training was if someone doesn't talk, you should just sit in silence with them. Um, and sometimes I do those things, but sometimes I'm more engaging. And that doesn't mean I give people advice. It just means I participate more. Sometimes it's right. more of a conversation. Um, but yeah, I never just say to people, sometimes people want that. Sometimes people are like, tell me what to do. And I think it's actually really important that people come to those realizations themselves. But I'm also not, if someone's sitting in silence, obviously uncomfortable, I'm not, not necessarily just going to sit there. Sometimes I'm going to ask a question to try to prompt more conversation. Um, yeah. So I don't just say, how do you feel about that? I think you're sort of a nouveau therapist or perhaps a therapist who's gone back and gone forward. Like the therapist that I've gone through, and there's been a plethora. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I don't remember um, really getting too much of that from them, sort of instructional stuff. And it was very much in the moment. It was entirely up to me in that room. Sometimes I felt as though they weren't working harder, doing their job. And I actually respect very much the approach that you take because – while you're not saying to a person, do this, if you don't do this, don't come back. If you don't do this, you're doing the wrong thing. You're offering people some emotional and mental options, which could be very healthy, right? Yes. And I think it, you know, it sounds like a lot of the therapists you saw were Freudians or psychoanalysts. So that is the approach they take, right? They're the blank slate. They're not really connecting with you. You can put all your transference on them. So you can put your dad issues on your therapist. And, Which I did, yeah. And that's a, that's a technique. And that really works for a lot of people. I think they're, I don't think what I do is unique. I think I know other therapists who also are more sort of more participatory in those conversations are trying to be really relational. Uh, I think different things work for different people. Some people want cognitive behavioral therapy. They want to come in for 12 weeks, figure out a particular issue and get right. out. Right. Some people want more long-term therapy, want to sort of develop that relationship. Because the uh, this is the other thing about therapy. If someone has 
grew up with what's called insecure attachment. So maybe they had difficulties with whoever their caregivers were. They didn't instill them with a sense of self-worth or um, value or that they deserve to be loved. And then they walk around in the world feeling that way. And as a result of feeling that way, they might make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. They might bring people into their lives who are going to reinforce that. So as a therapist, sometimes you can it's almost like changing someone's neural pathways. Like if you can be that attuned, loving, secure person in their life, you can actually change that and change the way they see relationships. Okay, we have a few more minutes, a couple of questions. How, ca how happy can we get? <laughs> that is such a difficult, I need you to say more about that. I've asked people late, lately, recently, people whom I respect a lot, people whom I know a lot, people who have done a lot in life, they work really hard, and they do meaningful, passionate stuff. And some of them literally say, I do not like life. I hate life. They are not suicidal. Mm -hmm. They're not. They'll go through their life, uh, their entire expect expectancy of age. And, uh, and they'll do it well. But they say life is hell. And I hate it. And it's so hard. I honestly can't wait to die. No, I, I don't mean to sound morose. <laughs> no, no, I really I don't. Know don't. Why, and I don't know why I'm laughing. It's totally <laughs> no, inappropriate. And then there are other people who are in completely, you know, embracing of the world in which we live and never will have thoughts about dying or death. And they just go through the day and they actually love it. So I, I've been wondering lately, how happy can most people get? Well, I mean, there's so many circumstances that affect that, right? Like what's going on in your life? Is your life running smoothly? Did you just get fired? I mean, can you be are blissful? You can you be sure, blissful? Sure, have you not met people who are blissful? On a regular basis, can you be blissful? Well, can I can only speak for myself. Do, can anyone be blissful all the time? I don't know. I B guess Buddhists, I think. May, yeah, maybe. Maybe there are people who have found a Zen place or a place of enlightenment where they've let go of their ego and let go of like, I don't know what to call, like earthly concerns and just feel calm all the time. But I guess for me, it's like, I just try to find the moments of joy and really appreciate them with an understanding that life is difficult and I'm not always going to feel that way. And But also to be okay with that. Instead of when those bad days happen, like I used to have a lot more bad days, um, but when bad days happen to be like, this is temporary, like all feelings are temporary and I'm not going to feel like this tomorrow. Alexa Gilmore who was an interviewee, just like you, sitting in the same chair. Hey. She's a minister at Windermere Church. Yes. Said to me when I asked her how it was to adopt three kids who had gone through such trauma in their lives, she said, I expect the messy. And when I expect the messy, it's okay. Because yes. I know the shit's going to happen. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Do you like life? I do. You do like life? Yes. See, I'm doing that quiet moment. You're doing that quiet moment. Yeah, and would I have said this seven or eight years ago? No. What do you like about life? Well, there's just so many possibilities. Like, I've gotten to have so many great experiences, and I have a lot of great relationships with interesting, funny, intelligent people who I love, and I get to go different places, and I, I can always learn about new things, and I just appreciate it. I feel a kind of excitement and wonder about things that I didn't always feel. Not to say that there aren't days where I just don't want to get out of bed, because there are, but I like life. Is this a brilliant design to you? You love birds. Yes. You, when you see a red bird or a blue bird or all those birds that you always tell us about, is, is do you look at it and you go, this is like a brilliant design? Yes, there's just so much beauty in the world. And like the way nature works and 
yeah, how is it possible that we have all of these beautiful creations all around us? And I just, I really appreciate those things. Yeah, you've seen so much ugliness. Yes. But I mean, I think there's, there's always going to be ugliness in life. And I think sometimes that ugliness makes me appreciate the good moments even more. So is that what it is? Is, is, is it balancing things out? Yeah, I think so. There was a, one of the prime ministers in Israel said, I have known war, I have been in war, and therefore I'll do anything I can to find peace. And I think that's probably true. People who go through absolute hell in life, their next goal, if possible, if they're able to, is to celebrate what you're speaking of. You just reminded me, actually, of when I sang, because of your friend Ellie Rubenstein, sang at the funeral of a Holocaust survivor. And her son was speaking. And he t talked about, you know, the Nazis wanted to exterminate her. And instead, she had all these children and grandchildren. And, at, you know, when she was in her 80s, she was dancing in the street. Yes. And the idea that that's how she won, in a sense. That's how she defeated the Nazis, that she loved life and that she created all of these other generations of people. And I know that's a really, obviously, extreme example, but I do think out of great pain. I mean, for some people, it's much more difficult. Some people aren't able to move past those experiences of great pain. But for those that can, like, I think you appreciate life more. Who was the first Jew you met? <laughs> you know? I, I don't know. Did you know any in Beamsville? Did I know any in Beamsville? I'm not sure. It's a good question. Was there any anti-Semitism in Beamsville? Well, I grew up in a small town and there was certainly racism. I think what I witnessed were other forms of racism more than anti-Semitism. Yes. I think that's, but anti-Semitism is something, oh, but, but you know, and I think we've talked about this before. When I was a kid, an expression that people used to use very commonly without thinking is you Jewed me. Yes, you Jewed me. When yes. they felt cheated. Yeah. And I didn't know what that meant. So when I was saying it, I wasn't connecting it to anything. But and only later did I realize what the implication of that was and where that came from. But uh, yeah, I think there was a lot of casual racism when I was a kid that just felt normal. As a non-Jew, can you fight racists? Can you fight anti-Semites? Well, I'm I can I'm certainly asking if you call will. out anti-Semitism when I see it, yes. Okay, okay thank you. Um, <laughs> how, You're come, how come you walked on the outside of the CN Tower? Why did you do that? You strapped yourself on and you walked on the outside of it. As soon and as you paid I, for it. I did. I paid a lot for it, actually. Well, as soon as I saw the ad that they had brought, it was called the Skywalk, that they'd brought it to Toronto, I just knew that I had to do it. Yes, why? There was just something thrilling about the idea of it for me that I got to walk on the outside of the CN Tower. And I wasn't like, I think I was nervous before we went up. But, you know, you're harnessed in with two harnesses. I knew that I was safe um, and it was absolutely thrilling. It was this huge rush of adrenaline. I could see the curvature of the earth and they got us to like lean forward off the side of the tower, lean backward off the side of the tower. And it just was life affirming. I just felt very alive. What wouldn't you do? I'm not sure. Would you jump out of a plane? Yes. Scuba dive? I have. You have. Would you fight a warrior? <laughs> I don't think I would be very uh, good at fighting, although I did take a self-defense class the other day, so I'm moving in that direction. I don't want to fight people. You ever regret not having kids? No. Not at all? No, I've never wanted to have kids. Why I love you want, kids. Why didn't you want kids? I don't know how to answer that question. It's just I... I Never right, right. wanted to get married and I never wanted to have kids. Why am I like this? Who knows? And you're cool with it? Yes, I'm totally fine with it. I have 
kids in my life. I have Noah in my life. My I have your son. I have other friends, kids in my life. I, I, it's not that I don't love children. It's just I never had any urge to have my own biological child. And the name of that lemon product that you bought to clean your house? <laughs> the brand is called Attitude. Okay, Attitude. So I'll put it right at the end so I can listen to it. <laughs> okay, so great. listen, thank you. Thank you for having me. You were really good. You're an excellent interviewer. I appreciate you saying that very much. And although I've heard your story and I know your story, of course, there's always nuances that friends don't get until they get it. Um, it's, yeah, you really, really articulate your story well. And it's a beautiful story that you tell. You know, it's the story of Joan Ruja. It's the Joan Ruja story. <laughs> It's yes. the Joan Ruja story. Yes, it is. And it's a beautiful story. Like anyone who's listening right now, just replace Joan Ruja with your name. We all have our stories. Mm -hmm. We all have our narratives. And it, and it's so nice to be able to articulate them because did this interview do something for you? Well, it's interesting because in the days leading up to this, I've been thinking about it. Because have you, you? You told me some of the things you were going to ask and it just sort of made me start reflecting on my life and thinking about stories. So... That was a, I enjoyed that. It was good to kind of mentally go through the catalog of my life and think about what I would want to share. It's like taking stock, isn't it? Yes. Yes, that's how I feel as mm -hmm. well. And actually, for me, asking the questions, much of the time I sort of reflect or I project the questions back on myself. So when I ask you, what would you do? What wouldn't you do? I'm really asking myself that question as well. You have more balls than I do in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want to go, you know, I went up in the CN Tower with my son and there's a glass floor mm -hmm. and there's a sign that said 12 hippopotamuses could walk on this floor. It's glass and not fall through. And I'm thinking, well, why isn't it 13? <laughs> Like you actually had a moment where you thought maybe you were going to fall through the glass floor? I had to floor? like crawl across. My son was four. He goes, oh, look, daddy, look, you know. I say, yeah, honey, I can see. And he's walking across it and all courageous and brave. And me, I'm like crawling across it, feeling like I'm going through some field in Europe during the war. It was terrible, right? So I don't have that type of courage that you have. I don't. But you have other types of courage. What, what, what sort of courage are you saying? Well, like, for example, you write articles. You've written a lot of articles for the CJN that you knew, sorry, the Canadian Jewish News, that you knew you were going to receive a backlash that's about. That's true. Yes, that's true. Um, which can be very difficult. That's true. And from your own community, that can be really painful. But you believe in those things and you write about them and you're willing to withstand that backlash because you have the courage of your convictions. So, listen, thanks for being here. Thank you. I so enjoyed it. And, Me too. And I'm also very delighted. Uh, if you're listening right now, I'm delighted that you're listening. I would ask you, please, if you'd like to be in touch, if you have any questions, please feel free to ask. I'd love to answer your questions about this uh, podcast or any aspects of it. If you're really like pissed off at Joan, I love that too. So you can let me know and I'll pass it on to her. I know someone's really pissed off. I know it. And also, if you could share the link, because the more people that listen to this podcast, the more money I make. <laughs> it's not really I'm not making a nickel it's costing me a fortune but if maybe like one day you'd like to donate to Hat maybe, Radio very good no no not yet maybe one day <laughs> but anyways thank you so much for listening um, we're going to have some great guests coming down the road as we did today and I look forward to being with you once again Hat Radio it is the show that schmizes thanks so much God bless step inside my living room share a little talk our roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I want to know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness
spread it all about in the hat in the hat put it all in the hat